Welcome to the Europe Reader podcast. My name is Rosie Goldsmith and I'm director of the European Literature Network, a journalist, broadcaster and presenter of the Europe Reader podcast, a series of audio conversations with riveting authors from across Europe. You may already know my nickname, Rosie the Riveter, and our magazine, The Riveter, as well as our riveting reviews and riveting interviews. They're all dedicated to giving European writers the prominence they deserve. In this special podcast series, the European Literature Network is teaming up with Europe Reader, a groundbreaking digital platform initiated by the Slovenian Presidency of the EU Council with the support of EU member states and EU institutions. Our joint motto is open a book for a better future. And our goal is to tackle the main topic of our times, the future of living. Through events and podcasts like these, we want to get readers everywhere, exchanging ideas, reflecting on the kind of world we want to live in and how literature and books can help. Find out more about Europe Reader by logging on to their website, europereader.eu. You can also read free books from each featured author in each EU member state on the website, both in the original language and in English translation. There are novels, short stories, poetry, comics, essays, and some beautiful picture books for younger readers. Each riveting Europe Reader interview is dedicated to one author. Today, I'd like to introduce you to the Slovak poet, Maria Ferencová, who's in Bratislava, capital of Slovakia. Now, welcome to you, Maria. And I've read your poetry in English, unfortunately not in Slovak. I know that you've written so much poetry, but we're really, really lucky to have these translations for us um, on the Europe Reader podcast. We're going to hear you read poetry, um, but first of all, I just want to hear a little bit more about you. Now, Bratislava, that's where you are now. Is that where you were born? Yes, I'm, I am from Bratislava. I was born here. And with maybe an exception of one or two years that I abroad, I have been living in Bratislava uh, all my life. And I am also a, an observer of uh, this uh, changing city, because I still remember how uh, dull and grey Bratislava was uh, at the end of the 80s. I was nearly 14 when uh, the Velvet uh, Revolution came, not only to Prague, but also to Bratislava and other uh, Slovak cities. And then I was witness of the huge transformation of this uh, capital, changing from a sleepy hole, let's say, to a big city with skyscrapers, with a lot of traffic, unfortunately, and a lot of people coming, going, coming back, uh, first Slovaks, and then becoming eventually more cosmopolitan, let's say. Would you say also European? Slovakia is also part of the European Union. Yes, it's a very European city. In It's the essence of a small Middle Europe, uh, of Europa city. And if we go to Zagreb or even Trieste, Budapest, uh, up to Lviv in Ukraine, which is not in European Union, but we still have these features of the cities of former Austro-Hungarian Empire with uh, the architecture that is a little bit different from the Western uh, European cities. Uh, it's not like Paris. Vienna is not very far from Brno, I mean, geographically, but culturally or architectonically, they are cousins. Now, Maria, you've given us a wonderful filmic camera-like view of Bratislava and your country over the last few years. 
it does make me think, you know, when I was reading about you, that you are very involved in film and you studied film history and so on. Tell us about your film background. Uh, yes, I've studied film, but I, I started with screenwriting studies. I wanted to write for the film or uh, write novels, short stories, whatever. And it was a single option to, to, to choose these studies because the main subject was writing and writing for, for the film. But I didn't know how to write for the film because I, I, I thought that writing is putting my thoughts on paper, not in a very visual way. And I was writing script or scenarios like if I was blind. And it was very difficult for us students in Bratislava in the 90s, where the Slovak cinema was uh, literally agonizing because uh, the film industry has crashed. And the Slovak television produced uh, very few documentaries, very few feature films or fiction films. And uh, during the 90s, there was maybe one or two films uh, made per year. And if you compare it with today, we produce uh, more than 15 up to 20 full-length films per year. So it was really a big contrast. I was studying in the very difficult times for the Slovak cinema. And I was a bad photographer, a better writer probably, and a very bad photographer. So I was photographing with my eyes and then writing about it and use it. So I transplanted the way of filming into the literature. And I thought that this method of mine was for the Slovak poetry uh, a bit unusual uh, because it went not from the inside, but from the outside through my mind and then on the paper. So you can see the frames, you can see the shots, but as a part of poem, as, as images. Tell me about the imagery in your writing. I won't tell you about the imagery. I will tell you something about the editing. Because the, the word editing, especially in, in, in Slovak, it, it doesn't work so well. But in English, you can use the word editing for text and for film. And as I am not very familiar with all these um, programs uh, and I can't even become a film editor in a proper way, I cannot cut one image with uh, and to, to put it together with another one. But what I can do, I can cut the images in the text. And I work like this. Uh, sometimes my streams of words are very long. It's like the continuous shooting. Uh, shooting on a, a, a digital camera and it's very very difficult then to edit something comprehensible uh, out of all this material. I was able to learn how to do it with poetry so I'm always cutting everything that I don't really need or is too banal or it's uh, uh, superfluous and I keep sometimes very distant images. And using film editing methods I can put two frames together to create another meaning. It's a, a little bit of Eisenstein's montage. And I think I am doing in poetry quite well because I was uh, a very attentive, uh, not only viewer of films, but also reader of many of the texts. And I could work it out and use it for my, uh, my poetry. 
In fact, um, when people do talk about your work or write about your work, it's always with that connection to film and the eye of the camera that you use in your words. It's really distinctive. And in fact, the way you've just been describing it is minimalist and possibly unsentimental as well, a little bit distant emotionally, always looking at things from outside. I wonder whether that is emotionally a deliberate act on your part. Thank you for this question. Uh, I think it's uh, really essential because I'm learning something about uh, my own poetry uh, till now. I thought I was uh, doing these distant descriptions because I, yeah, I, I wanted to keep the distance uh, because it was very uh, stressing or I perceived so many hurting things. So much pain. But I think now that, uh, because for me, what and it, it's a conscious description what I am making here now. I am considering poetry to be an oetic medium for me because I'm, I'm, I'm trying to, to understand, to know something about the world, but not only about the world, but about myself too. And I think that this uh, distance, this description from the outside was uh, just the way to code my own emotions, my own fears, or any big problem that I felt in the world. And it was the strategy for coping with it. Because the facade was uh, what readers read, but not what was behind it. But well, I can see it now, and it's almost transparent to me. And it's very touching to read my own poetry. It's not like a, I am denying these uh, aesthetics I don't use anymore. No, it's the portrait of a very fragile young human being. So you started in your 20s and you've got five collections to date. And I've written down some of the names because, as you know, only one of them, Tidal Events, is in English so far <laughs> let's hope there'll be more but um immunity threatened species which is the europe reader collection we're going to be hearing from hidden subtitles the uncertainty principle and the most recent which is wave from 2020 and the way that you've described them as covering several decades of your life it seems to me that they are the story of your life and the story of your ideas and your thoughts on everything that's happened to you and what you think about the world. Yes, definitely. Yeah, yeah. They, they are the, like like the chapters of, uh, of my life, but not only of my life, but also the environment felt and read and understood by me. Because I don't think my experience is so unique. I think the fact that it can be shared with people and it can be understand is a proof that uh, I am not that unique because people can understand me so they can relate to it and their experiences are or can be somehow similar. Isn't that the most important point though that you're trying to do in your poetry is you're relating something incredibly private, but in a universal way. And I know that may sound like a cliche, really, but that is exactly what you're doing, isn't it? It's very delicate because the border between uh, banality and something universal is sometimes not very perceptible. And what I need to do is to, to set it way it's still aesthetically convincing. 
why don't we hear some of your poetry now? Because then we can talk about it a little bit more and people listening will know what we're talking about. Now, this is from the collection that we are focusing on for, for the Europe Reader Project, which is um, called Threatened Species, or in some translations, Endangered Species. And the poems have been translated into English by James Sutherland Smith, who is himself a poet, a very prolific translator from Slovak, I think. Maria, let's hear you read. A light green continent with a spiky peninsula, the sea, an emerald whitish interface. The view from above doesn't belong to a god, but a satellite. A strip by the coast, the color and shape of the Milky Way, an oil spill silently expands. In a new outfit, brown and watertight as a raincoat, you hide a beak. Successfully concealing the essence of a bird, you sight finally, not like a seagull, but a tapir. Leaning against the damp facade with one leg draped over the other and cheap cigarette in hand, in a flood of green and then in, in a white brown dark, you create the impression you have befriended mammals, birds, and salamanders. From here, it, it, it isn't obvious that the animal portraits are from a calendar. Under the head, not even the sticky hair is obvious. Thickening liver tissue is hidden under the skin. Night hides day, water once more fear. And you drown a bleary glance in thoughts transparent as alcohol. You possess. You have. It stays with you. You save the goods of this world in your palm. You close it, open again. It's empty. You open the newspaper, also empty. The radio reporting a frontal depression, road accidents, outrages in distant lands. You no longer see the forest from the window, only the dull house opposite. We ruined almost everything, moved it. Deflected, broke, ground down, stuffed it with rubbish, soiled it, and now we fill in the shambles soonest pouring in concrete. Certain folk also go out in the streets on foot, from under rotten planks, from deep burrows and dump cellars, thousands of gleaming eyes follow them mesmerically. They still have not lost hope of grasping, squeezing, of any sort of rampage where they confirm a body count and preserve their line. All these children, they run among the lights and disappear under the gate. In piles of dry leaves, they steer clear of traps. They zigzag, come out as dark falls, sort of paper after paper, folder after folder. They smoke cigarette butts, drink up wine, sip milk, juice, curl up under cartons, cover themselves with branches. Calmly, they wait until the time comes for them. It doesn't take much. Touch the earth, like one's own skin. Let the nervous system overgrow through the border of the body. Take root, descend of the depths of the river, not to persist in running, to stop 
give. What inspired this particular collection and why call it Threatened Species, Endangered Species? Yes, there is something that was lost in translation from Slovak to uh, English, and uh, it's the word species, because in Slovak it's druh, and it's not only species, but it's also the partner, the partner of, of your life. So it's uh, uh, there is uh, uh, not only uh, the general name for all the population of living creatures, but also these individuals. And it, it was this... Uh, tension between individual and universal that moved the creation of, of the text. And uh, the movement was also one of the, the most important things because I wrote it in 2011. It was a very difficult year, not only for me personally, because I was a mother of a three years old boy who was all the time sick and uh, staying at home. So I worked from, I was in, 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 uh, in a lockdown, we can say, and I was uh, reading newspapers, watching documentary films, and that's how something that we call now climate change anxiety came to me. It's not a climate change phenomenon, but uh, hurricanes, uh, many meteorological events in Slovakia with heavy rains and then uh, no rains at all. And I had the impression that something was happening with the planet, with me too, because I was so, so imprisoned in my intimate life, being confronted only with the images film images or journalistic photographs, um, even reportages uh, written um, in form of, uh, of the text. And then I was invited to the literature festivals for the first time in my life. Uh, it was my third uh, collection being in, in, in the process of, uh, of writing. And uh, I was very surprised because, uh, of course, I was uh, invited to poetry readings in Slovakia. This was uh, like a beginning. And it was like a rapid montage from the cinema and the filmmaking. And I was having something that came from the static to a very dynamic. And the perceptions of the world I had moved me so much that for the first time, because I'm a very slow writer, I wrote a collection of poetry within maybe two months in the trains. So from this uh, static imprisonment to this dynamic of not more than uh, two months, it was very quick. It was surprisingly quick and easy to write about something that I found very heavy and uh, hard to communicate. And maybe it was so because of that that I choose a very simple almost journalistic language because because I write one book for maybe two or three years after periods of dryness. So not a single verse. I write maybe three or even five, six, seven poems. And then again, a dryness uh, comes back. I imagine that you don't earn your living then just from poetry because... I would be already dead. <laughs> you'd, be, you'd be very poor. <laughs> The collection you've just described, you've been reading from um, Threatened Species, was published, as you say, over 10 years ago. But here it is. It is so relevant to today when we've been talking about climate change and, of course, the pandemic and you know this heavy, oppressive, depressing feeling that you had and this lockdown feeling and then this need to escape and so on. 
I mean, it must strike you as being a wonderful moment for all of us to read your poetry, this collection, now. Yes, I think I just wrote it in the, in the wrong time because it was too early for that. And I was talking about some, of course, scientists are warning for more than 30 years already. So what I wrote 10 years ago, it's nothing compared to the frustration that some climate activists, scientists, climatologists, uh, or even ocean researchers or biologists have to experience. So because I was frustrated 10 years ago, and not only frustrated, but scared and, and sad, and then the book in Slovakia was already forgotten. It was published in 2012. Uh, it's my most criticized book, actually, out of the five, because it was too striking. It was considered as alarming. So look, tell, me, had... tell me, what, what were you trying to achieve? Do you see yourself like a poet activist? This is secondary for me, because, of course, when I'm writing, I don't know that I'm writing about something that I really find alarming. And I think that we should talk about this. If I was aware of it, I would write an article to the biggest uh, newspaper of, uh, of the Slovakia. I would try to do it differently because poetry doesn't reach the people it doesn't attract the, the masses. So why to be activist uh, through the poetry? And as I said, poetry for me is the way I can know and understand what's happening in the world. Because when I am not uh, consciously thinking or seeing things and I can perceive them, but I don't realize how big they can be and what I can do with them, I'm trying to explore it through the poetry. It's emotional and rational at the same time. I really want to know what's happening in me and around me. You're Slovak and you're a woman and you're a poet. And I'm just wondering today how many Slovak female poets there are. This is a generation of female writers. Of course, we still have male poets or or novelists or short story writers, but the generation, my generation of women was already large and numerous and prolific, I think, uh, despite the fact that I'm not publishing that much, but other women uh, poets or prose writers do. And this is a big difference uh, from the past because older female poets were complaining that they were very solitary and uh, it was much more difficult to be heard when a woman was a solitary figure in the male literature. And it make, makes you feel more insecure, lonely, of course. And it changed mostly in the second part of the 90s and dominantly after 2000. And I think we were helped by the generation of Slovak feminists who were not that much into literature, but they were rather in publishing. They translated many texts by female authors. And of course, these women, they were writing besides. But for me, uh, the most important thing was uh, at the first sight, their publishing activities. And I think this prepared the terrain for my generation of women. So what are Slovak readers reading? Are they reading novels, short stories, poetry? They are not reading poetry. They, some of them, of course, are reading poetry, but I think that uh, the poetry is read by the people who, who are trying to read, to write poetry too. So poetry is read among the poets 
and those who one day will be bullets or would like to be bullets. And of course, the dominant uh, form is the novel, maybe the short stories. The 90s were completely submerged with literature and translation because we were so hungry to see what was what is published abroad, what is the state of the literature abroad, because the number of translated books before November 1989 was very restrained. So I remember that at the beginning of the 90s, there were plenty of even the reedition of what was already translated and published before, together with something that was, let's say, forbidden during the socialist era. So people were really hungry for translations, for especially novels. You yourself are a translator. You've translated so much. So when did you start to translate? I started translating because there was this hole on the market, the titles of the books missing. And I started with essays on philosophy of perception. My first book that I translated was uh, La Machine de Vision by Paul Virilio, the French uh, philosopher of media. So this was the first book I translated. But you have uh, you've translated the... some amazing names. I mean, I was looking at them, um, Alain Mabancou, who I know um, very well from French, Samuel Beckett. But these are the recent translations. You know, it's after 2010 when I could consider myself uh, as an established translator because I had already several books uh, translated and I translated only the first novel by uh, Michel Welbeck. I translated one uh, play by Samuel Beckett. I translated only one Mabanku. And rarely, I don't even remember if I have translated two books by one author. And friends or colleagues asked me that, how is it possible you don't specialize? And I don't specialize because, yeah, I am a little bit, how to say, I... Uh, You're like a magpie. <laughs> yeah, I like to change. And I'm jumping from the translation into the film theory. And then I go back to poetry and I try to connect all these fields together and to make it one nourishes the others actually to be the text of someone else this is an incredible experience it's probably even better than writing your own text because you don't have this hesitation is it good or should I uh, rewrite it with translation you have the freedom to go back uh, to go forward but the, the text you cannot translate faithfully everything so it's all the time looking for a solution that is optimal Translating poetry is a very different challenge to translating prose. What do you think the challenges are in translating your poetry? This one collection in English, and I know that there are several other translations into other languages of your work. And I wonder what you make of the rhythm and the accuracy of the translation into English. I think it's always very difficult to be translated into a language you can understand. Because sometimes you realize that you don't speak that language 
as good as you thought because words can have many layers and some of them you don't know that yeah they they have these connotations but for me the translation is the process the dialogue with the translator so I am always happy if translators ask me questions because for me it's the proof that I can be understand I can be understood well and uh, with uh, James Sutter and Smith, we spent a lot of time discussing. And sometimes I just gave up because uh, he understood the meaning, but he could change the rhythm because he feels it much better as a native speaker as, uh, as I could. Because, uh, well, I really have to admit that I don't get completely my poetry translated into English. Mara, I know how much you love meeting people at poetry gatherings, you know, traveling as well to talk about your poetry. And so I just wonder how this pandemic time has been for you. Has it been hard or have you been able to write more because you've had more time at home? Once again, poetry saved my life because I could concentrate on small, short texts and I could really rest in them, in these small pieces of texts that, that were sometimes large as universes. So the first months of lockdowns were tough. And then finally, I think I evolved and became less frustrated, more relaxed, more available for my son, for my husband and for myself also. I started to write new things, but in prose. So no poetry anymore. And I think I'm done with the poetry. I don't need it anymore. I don't need to scream from inside. Uh, I don't need to reflect uh, my inside in the other world. I think I'm much more calm and I don't need to code things that much. Are you talking about a novel? Probably it will end up as a collection of short stories that are interconnected. But who knows? I uh, actually don't have the ambitions. I feel so relaxed that I don't care if I publish it one day or not. And this is very new for me. So thank you very, very much to Maria Ferencová and uh, in Slovakia. My name is Rosie Goldsmith, and thank you for listening to today's riveting interview podcast dedicated to those riveting European authors participating in the Europe Reader Project. You can read Maria's poetry and writing from all our featured authors for free on the Europe Reader website. You can also listen to all our podcasts in this series on both the Europe Reader website and the European Literature Network website, along with all our riveting interviews. This is a special riveting interview podcast for Europe Reader. Thank you for listening.